0: Welcome to Season 2 of Open Deeply, devoted to exploring the relationships society pushes into the shadows. Kinky love, non-monogamous love, neurodiverse love, and more. Jack Kornfield says to open deeply requires tremendous courage, a warrior spirit, and unconventional love takes just that. So, join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lorie.
1: Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Now, if you've been listening to season two of Open Deeply, you know we are exploring love and connection in its many forms. And we have been working on a series on non-consensual non-monogamy. And this episode is our fifth installment. And we're featuring the amazing insight and knowledge of my co-host, Kate Lurie. Now, to catch all up to speed, last time, we covered mood disorders and personality disorders within non-monogamy. And this episode, we're going to discuss ways to maintain connection in non-monogamous relationships. So if you're just joining us for the first time, you know, sit down, grab a cup of coffee or tea and have a listen. But please make sure you go back and listen to those other episodes, too, so you get the whole series. All right. So Kate. Hi, Kate. Hello. Hello, How Sunny. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have been excited. Before we get going, do you want me to do the honors and give you a little introduction for our new folks? Yeah, just a tiny one. Okay. So, hey, everyone. This is Kate. Hi. Um, Kate is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist. She has a specialty in non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities. Kate's also a certified sex educator, an EMDR certified therapist with training in the trauma resiliency model, treatment for trauma, and she's been practicing psychotherapy since 2003. Kate's been all over the media, you know, BuzzFeed, podcasts, all sorts of magazines and Kate's latest adventure and I guess kind of the impetus for this conversation and series is Kate is the author of the newly released book called Open Deeply, A Guide to Building Conscious, Compassionate and Open Relationships. I'm so excited. Such a good book. Everyone go read it. Go read it. And uh, real quick, I'm, I feel like the den mother, like I'm I'm looking after everyone's stuff. There's one more thing before we get into it, Kate. I want to give everyone a reminder that this podcast isn't therapy or a replacement for therapy. So those listening along, if you find things coming up for you during our conversation, please practice your own self-care. All right. I'm den mother mode deactivated. <laughs> I've set our container. (laughs) Yes, yes, thank you so much. So what are we talking about today, Kate? We are talking
2: about threats to maintaining connection within non-monogamy. So basically just to back up and, and talk about why it is that I'm focusing in on that. In my private practice, I tend to attract like say a couple that comes to me in therapy regardless of what they have you know going on at home whether they have other lovers or they're in a triad or a quad it's usually an individual or couple that comes to me and so they tend to be in a nesting relationship or have some sort of hierarchy And because they're coming in that way, they do have concerns about making sure that their relationship stays strong. They identify as, you know, consensually non monogamous, but they do, you know, sometimes have fears that the other lovers or partners might have a negative impact on their relationship. And so, you know, it's my job to. Make sure that all parties are involved, even the ones that are not in the room, are treated like human beings and treated with respect and that, you know, everyone is listened to, but to also help this couple feel secure in their relationship.
1: Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And I know, like, you know, a lot of times, I don't know, I see on social media and even when I'm talking, you know, in my circles and with people that I work with, I hear a lot about, you know, single polyamory or like not even single polyamory but like the focus on one person and how they feel and their internal issues that they're wrestling with so i like this you know the the not only the togetherness of two people but then how what goes on between them has those like ripple waves you know like a pebble in the water to all of their other partners as well It gets complicated, as we talked about in the last
2: episode, when we were talking about other factors like mental illness and, you know, personality disorders, you know, there's all these different things that we have to think about. So yeah, if you think about some of the threats to maintaining connection, you know, a few of those things are, we all know about NRE, or sometimes called limerence, when one of our partners ends up having a new lover or partner. Oftentimes they experience new relationship energy and that can be really scary to witness, you know, because that person all of a sudden is is so wrapped up. And sometimes even if they're in the car next to us, you can tell that they're really absorbed in their phone and they don't even feel like they're present. You know, there can be all these indicators that can make the person witnessing their partner in NRE fear that they're losing their partner. And, you know, when you think about what's going on with NRE or limerence, There's a whole chemical cocktail going on inside, like low serotonin that makes you obsess on the new lover, dopamine, which some say stimulates the chase aspect of love, you know, oxytocin that makes you bond, noradrenaline that makes you feel energized and optimistic and and empowered. And so when you're witnessing your partner all of a sudden have this cascade of changes in their personality due to this new lover, it can be really intimidating. That's number one. One, the next one is something I call typecasting. The third is greater attunement with the new lover. And the last thing to mention is just technology. So, you know, with NRE, it's one of those things that when you are aware of it, you can create practices in your relationship to make sure that you stay connected. You know, with, and we'll talk about that a little bit further on. With typecasting, I'm just going to explain all four of these. With typecasting, typecasting is, for instance, when you have a new lover or your partner has a new lover, A lot of times the person that's the nesting partner ends up being kind of cast as the responsible one, almost like Clark Kent and the outside lover is Superman. You know, the outside lover gets to be the hot one. You know, the the outside lover is the one that doesn't have any responsibilities and is the sexy one, whereas, you know, back home at the ranch you know, the partner that you've always been with is that partner that you do the taxes with and, and all of that. And so and the part of the problem with that is most people that are non monogamous, they've fallen in love under what I call the six love language of carefree fun, freedom and adventure, they didn't sign on board to be the boring one. So when this happens, they're, they're usually not happy about it at all. Like they're usually saying things like, How did I all of a sudden become the boring one? How did this happen to me? The fourth one, greater attunement with the new lover. You know, this can happen when you're with your partner and now you have this, you know, you've gone, you've been together for 10 years or so. And when you first met each other, you were really connected, you had the same interests and all of that. But over time, maybe you, you know, kind of grew apart or what have you. You started
1: doing your taxes together.
2: (laughs) Right. You started doing (laughs) your taxes together. Yes, exactly. Then say your partner, you know, all of a sudden, you know, over time gets really into social justice issues, but you just want to work out at the gym and, and, you know, and do CrossFit or what have you, and your interests completely go in different directions. And now you decide to have other lovers. And so you meet, an awesome person at the gym that you can do CrossFit with. Meanwhile, your other, your partner finds a lover that, you know, that they meet at a Black Lives Matter rally, you know, (laughs) and all of a sudden there's way more connection with these outside partners, even though the two of you have been together for 10 years. And sometimes that can be a greater threat than, you know, even new relationship energy or some of these other things. Because it has to do with alignment of your core values and things like that sometimes.
1: Even when I hear these, like even not like going, oh my God, I'm relating this to my own situation. But it's like, you know, I hear NRE, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, And type cat, okay. And then when you were like greater attunement with a new lover, my insides were like, but is that at the point where you might decide, like, we actually really have grown apart and we don't belong together anymore because we don't have any of the same interests and nothing in common. And then I started getting like, and we're not even talking about me. So <laughs> I can see how that can be a huge just emotional trigger for people, even if that's not really what's happening, that people can perceive that. So that's interesting. Well,
2: For me, in my personal life, I can think of a situation where I had a new lover where all three of those things was were going on. There was the new relationship energy. There was the typecasting where he was the hot, sexy one that I was going to all the parties with. And my partner at home was, you know, we would just watch TV together, you know. And there was greater attunement with that new lover. Like, we were just on the same page about everything. All three of those things were happening simultaneously. So that's something to keep in mind, you know, when all those things are happening simultaneously. And then sometimes even the fourth thing can be also ha- like all four of these things can be happening at the same time. The technology piece, that's the easiest to fix. And it's, it's something that comes up with every couple I work with where they don't usually have any boundaries over screens. And so... Like they're going out on a date together. Like say they're going to the art museum because, you know, that's something they share together is they love art, but then they're waiting in line. And one, you know, one of the partners is just on their phone
1: sexting with another lover. It's interesting you say that because just today I saw somebody talking online about the same thing. Somebody had asked, and I don't know, you know, where the conversation started, but I kind of jumped in where somebody had asked, you know, what do you do? when you're out on a date with one partner and the other partner's texting, like what if they keep, what if they ignore you and keep texting back? And in my mind, my immediate gut reaction was like, who would do that? You know, like I, in my mind, I'm like, Right. I think, well, that's common sense. Have some courteousness and, you know, don't be texting someone unless it's like an emergency or like an exceptional situation, because that's just kind of rude to the person you're supposed to be paying attention to. However, then I realized like, oh, what I consider, quote, common sense isn't everybody's common sense. And maybe I'm not even right. Like to me, I'm right but maybe not to that and it's like yeah that would be a problem right there me assuming like have some decency I mean come on (laughs) well I mean usually when I have a couple that comes
2: in with this issue it's literally something we can solve in one session you know or even in part of the session where I'm just like okay let's create some boundaries around this let's create some time at night where there's no screens except maybe you know if you're watching a tv show together or what have you. And, you know, let's create some boundaries around time that's precious and just for the two of you that has nothing to do with any other lovers and make those agree, make sure that all parties involved are on board and okay with that. And it's usually just not hard every now and then. I've had a problem where there's one partner that's just uh, very self-absorbed and doesn't have much compassion and is kind of narcissistic where they just won't, but. That's rare. Most couples can work this through relatively quickly when they realize that they could just set a few boundaries and it's all good.
1: And it seems like something that's also easy to involve, you know, the other person with like, hey, these are the ground rules we're thinking about. What do you think about this? And, you know, and just get something where everybody's on board, no matter how many partners there are.
2: I think greater attunement with the new lover, that's something you need to get in front of before it ever happens. If you've been phoning things in with the person you live with, your nesting partner, your, you know, if you have a hierarchy, the, you know, your primary or whatever, if you've been phoning it in, then when that new lover comes along, it just happens. And and it's now it's kind of too late at that point, or not necessarily too late. It could be a wake up call and, and cause you to to start to be more diligent on nurturing your relationship with the person you've been with longer. But a lot of times when that wake up call happens, it is kind of too, it can be too late.
1: So what are the signs that when you're saying like, you know, like dial it in before it gets to that point, would that be me recognizing like, oh, hey, we've grown apart or oh, hey, we don't go on date nights. Like, what would that look like?
2: Well, you know, to me, it's like even before that, even before there's the warning sign, you know, it's one of those things where. You know, if there's a way to prevent some kind of illness, why wouldn't we just prevent the illness from happening rather than wait until there's symptoms of the illness? You know, I think one of the main things you can do is make sure you maintain what I call the three pillars of connection. One is an intellectual connection. So with the intellectual connection, a lot of times we let that slide in relationships because, you know, we get lazy. But I mean, it's literally one of the easiest things to maintain if you have any common interests, because you can just say to yourself, I'm going to make a point of learning something new today that I can share with my partner, you know, like just learn anything, you know, and, and make a point of sharing it with your partner. And so many people just don't do that.
1: So I'm thinking like, and, and I have a question, if this falls underneath Me and my partner are learning a new language together. So it's like every day we get together and we're like, this is what I learned. Try to talk to me, da, da, da. Or, you know, we talk about that. That's been lately kind of our new, I don't know if it's a hobby that we're doing together, but would finding like common things that you're learning together or hobbies that you're doing together count as intellectual, like things you can talk about and engage with?
2: Yeah, I mean anything that you feel is intellectually stimulating that you can share would count as as hitting that the intellectual pillar of the three pillars. Then if another lover comes along and they're interesting and they're smart, it's like your primary is going to be like, "Well, they're smart, but aren't I blessed to have two smart people in my life that I have into, you know, stimulating conversations with?" Rather than, "Thank God, I can actually have a, co- a conversation with somebody again." Because things have gotten so boring in my house. So this is what I'm talking about. It's just like it doesn't really take much effort to maintain an intellectual connection if you have anything in common intellectually. And, you know, the second pillar is the emotional pillar. So, you know, if you listen to like Sue Johnson lists a few things that she thinks is important in terms of keeping an emotional connection that she feels like most people want One is accessibility, and that can form the question, can I get your attention when I need it? After accessibility is responsiveness. Will you make an effort to comfort me when I'm anxious, sad, lonely, or afraid? Are you effective at comforting me? After accessibility and responsiveness is the last one, engagement. Do you care about my well-being? even when we are not together? Do you care about my joys, hurts, fears? Will you care about me consistently and reliably? And so I think, you know, if you are nurturing, if you are making a point of being accessible, responsive, and engaged with your partner, then that's, you're maintaining the second pillar of, you know, the emotional pillar. And so if some new lover comes along, then, you know, and they're like really have high emotional intelligence. Again, it's going to be like, isn't it great that I have two partners that are so emotionally intelligent and present?
1: You know, what's interesting. I was just reflecting back on, you know, when I was a new poly person, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing and everything's scary. I realized that one of the things that triggered my jealousy was actually like these emotional pieces that that you just talked about. Like, I realized that and it wasn't that the new person was taking something away from me, it more shone a light on the fact that even before this new person came along, We were slipping in one of these areas like I was feeling like I didn't have enough access or I didn't have enough like, you know, us time in whatever way, shape or form that was and going through the motions. And I see this a lot of times with like folks who are monogamous. Sometimes you just go through the motions and maybe it doesn't even like consciously dawn on you, like something is slowly becoming more and more missing in our relationship. You know, it happens. It's like the frog boiling in the pot. You don't realize it's happening. And for me, when a new partner, when my partner would have a new partner, that's what would make me realize like, oh, we're in boiling water. We haven't had a date night for six weeks. Wait, I don't feel like I'm getting something now that I see the another person getting it and it wasn't that I was jealous of that other person and I think that's what I needed to parse that with my jealousy wasn't it wasn't that's this person's fault it was more like thank you this person for shining a light on something that was a problem that actually had nothing to do with you and we have to work on that now that feeling which may
2: show up as feeling a little jealous or resentful of the new lover you can really help you have awareness on the relationship. I mean, so many relationships are unconscious and reactive. So many, rather than conscious and, you know, aware. I always try and get my couples to kind of go meta and, you know, watch the John and Carrie show or, you know, not just notice, not just be in their conversations, but literally kind of be watching it and go, oh, this is the place where, we have a double trigger or this is the moment where we feel loving and connected, like have that outside observer watching the show of your relationship, almost like a studio audience member and notice those things from an outside perspective. So that doesn't take an outside lover to point these things out as much, although the outside lover can be a gift, like you said.
1: Right. And I think it's all a matter of perspective. Like, of course at 1st my knee jerk reaction was like, fuck this new person. Look what the-. And I was like, no, 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 no. Wait, wait. this has nothing to do with them. Wait a minute. Like, I don't need to be jealous of this new person that, you know, they're just, I don't know if maybe they're showing me, you know, something I didn't realize was missing or, you know, I'm, a lot of people are kind of out of sight, out of mind, you know, again, like that frog boiling in the pot of water, you don't even realize it's happening until somebody's like, Hey, Hey, do you see this? You know? And, That's what that new person would help me see.
2: And this is why, you know, like Megan from Amory always talks about that non-monogamy can be a spiritual journey. You know, it's like in that moment where you're feeling those feelings, you have a choice. You know, you could like fly off the handle and be like, screw this person and like completely have this huge emotional, reactive, unconscious uh, reaction, or you can slow down, get grounded, really look at what's happening in your relationship and have a more conscious decision on how to proceed. Yeah, it's really a choice. And, you know, you have to really choose to do the higher road, you know, but it is possible. So the the third pillar is the sexual pillar. Now I get some people are asexual, so they might not identify with this third pillar. But for those of us who do, you know, this is another part of maintaining your sexual connection. And again, people can get lazy and they can get self-entitled regarding sex. They can take their partner for granted. They can get to a place where they appear bored when they're with their partner. You know, they can get to a point where they don't make an effort to flirt or invite flirtation. And it can be very painful if you are non-monogamous and you participate in group sex with your partner when you witness You know, your partner having like all this sexual vitality and inspiration with someone else and not having that with you, where you're like, oh, well, you have it in you to be sexual. It's not that you have low libido, it's that you're just not into me anymore
1: like, let's say there are couples who, you know, one or both of those partners are asexual. Would it make sense to maybe for them agree to replace that sexual piece with ma- you know, whatever it is for them, like romance or affection or like whatever kind of ticks their boxes if it's not your stereotypical sexual encounter?
2: if you're asexual and then you are with a partner that is more sexual and they have a lover and they have a sexual relationship i think it's it's probably very important to be honest about what your needs are cuz i can imagine i haven't had that kind of situation happen in my private practice to be honest with you but i can imagine just like if it's a configuration where one person is monogamous to someone who's non-monogamous and they have another lover, I can imagine that that person, that it could be very painful at times.
1: Yeah, I would think that the, that would be hard, but I would think that the best thing would be a lot of honesty and really understanding each other's needs. and.
2: You know, I think it'd be important to be with a partner that's very loving and caring and understands that this is a hard Situation, you know, or potentially a hard situation. And it's very easy when, you know, especially if you're involved in great group sex, to get caught up in the excitement of new lovers and disrespect boundaries or fail to attune with your partner emotionally or sexually. And so, you know, this is a really important pillar. They all are. But, you know, you can see how if um, you let this pillar slide, that again, typecasting, where when the person back home is the responsible one and the person on the outside is the sexy one, you can see how how that pillar really impacts typecasting. And if you, again, get in front of this before the typecasting ever happens and you make sure that you keep your sexual connection alive, then the likelihood that this typecasting hurdle will happen is greatly diminished. So you can see that if you maintain the three Pillars of connection. That helps with the typecasting. It helps with the greater attunement with the new lover. And it also helps with NRE. Because if you still feel connected to your, you know, your primary or nesting partner, when there's another lover and you're feeling all that new relationship energy, there's not going to be as much of a fear that you're that you're just going to run
1: off and never come back. Like this the secure base is there I can definitely see that you know when those things are out of alignment yeah that fear of like oh oh god but when you are in alignment it's you know a the perfect setup for compersion like I know everything's great on our end and I am happy seeing that my lover is happy with what they're doing with another part. Like I am enjoying the fact that they have something to enjoy.
2: When you feel nurtured and invalidated and, and empathize with and, and your needs are met, then it's way easier to have compersion. And even the fourth block, the technology piece, I think people are way less likely to be jerks about the technology piece if they feel connected to their lover with the three pillars. You know, if, when we're sliding and we're like phoning it in our relationship, it's really easy to all of a sudden just get lost in your phone and block out the fact that you're breaking your partner's heart with, you know, the disrespect and all of that. So those are the three pillars. And then moving on to reconnection rituals. Reconnection rituals are really important. Even if a cl- client isn't non-monogamous, I talk to them about having reconnection rituals with whoever is last- to get home from work, you know, where, and it shouldn't be something like, how was your day at work? Cause that just puts the person right back into probably a stressful frame of mind. You know, it's usually more body-based. So because we're talking about non-monogamy, let's talk about the reconnection ritual after your partner comes home from a date. It might be something different for different people. Some people might want something to let them know that your partner has switched gears and has kind of let you know everybody's different some people have compersion right and they want to hear about the date and they get
1: excited for me it's almost as if i don't know when like you're in high school or something and your girlfriend goes out with a new guy and then they get back. You're like, call me right after your date and tell me how it was. Then what happened? Then what happened? And I love that, you know, but of course I just want to like reiterate out there for like people listening going, Oh, that's cool. Like get the other person's permission, you know, cause that can be a little hairy if some private stuff went on and I'm like, I want you to tell me about, and it's like, yeah, but that's also another person's story that isn't my partner. So like in our relationship, we usually do have like, a, hey, is it OK if I tell my other partner about this sort of thing just to make sure that we're not violating any assumed confidentiality?
2: Right. I mean, that's so important, you know, and a lot of times, especially, you know, people in primary relationships, they sometimes forget to do that and they just kind of share things without thinking about the fact that they might be violating someone's privacy. And and again, we have to re- remember everybody's a human being in this, you know, like everybody should be treated with respect. And, you know, so yeah, there's the couples that love to share what happened on the date and that can be incredibly bonding and fun. And, you know, so many people that are newly non-monogamous will say, you know, we feel closer than we've ever felt because we have this new thing to share. There's other people that have a hard time when their partner goes on a date and they do want some kind of almost like a a cleansing process, you know, to before they reconnect. That can be tricky because that can seem like that can seem sex negative. You know, like the person that's like, well, I want you to brush your teeth first. I want you to take a shower first.
1: Oh, I don't want her on me. (laughs) It's like that I don't want essence of them in my bed.
2: (laughs) Right. That can feel, yeah, very sex shaming, you know, but at the same time, for some people, it's not really about sex shaming or it it might not be that they hate this other lover or super jealous. It may be that they want some kind of indication that their partner is kind of switching gears, kind of like in BDSM. Sometimes, you know, I've heard of examples where like the CEO comes home from work and the sign that he switched over in submissive role is to come up to his dom, get on his knees and kiss her knees as she's seated, you know, something like that. And that marks the switch between him letting go of his CEO role and switching over into his submissive role. You know, so for some people, it's, it's kind of like that. They want some kind of marker that there's been a shift back to them and so if they are wanting something like you know their partner to get the smell of the other lover off or whatever it's like you know you could take a shower together or something like that that doesn't feel so so shaming and it may be that that has to be a discussion because it may rub your partner the wrong way it's important to have a discussion if that's something that you need Because you might have to find some kind of shade of gray that makes both of you happy or, you know, hopefully there's a place that you can find that both people are okay with.
1: I can see that. Yeah, for me, because it wouldn't necessarily be the act that bothers me. It's the intention behind it. It's like, why? And I would have to have that discussion. And yeah, if the intention kind of made me a little like, "Ah, that's a little... uh," Yeah, that might be a problem. And just talking a little bit more
2: about reconnection rituals, I try and steer people towards something physical, especially, again, if you're coming home from work or something like that, you know, where it might be something like a hug or, you know, if it is words, it might just be something like I love you so much, something that helps you physically feel reconnected with your partner when you're reunited. For some people, a lot of times it's touch that helps two people feel connected again. Like it could be just a long, silent hug or something like that, you know, that that helps. Another thing that can help with reconnection rituals is an ongoing gratitude practice of some sort. And you can couple that with tracking your body or verbalizing that with your lover. So when you're thinking about a gratitude practice, well, let me just back up and just say, if you think about Stan Tatkin's book, wired for love. He talks about how most of us are more like wired for war, wired for anxiety. So we have a tendency to scan for what's wrong. And this comes from way back in our, you know, ancestors who were scanning in order to survive, right? The anxious ones sometimes survived. And so how that shows up in our relationship, instead of scanning for the bear that's going to eat us or whatever, we're scanning for what's wrong within our relationship and the problem with that is that has nothing to do with love really if you're always just scanning for what's wrong in the relationship so he talks about switching it over into a place where you're wired for love and part of being wired for love is an active gratitude practice of knowing noticing what you love about your partner and that can be reconnecting when you feel like you're drifting apart you know, to literally say to your partner, you know, I just love how funny you are. And I love how we can just play jokes off of each other. And we, when we're really on a roll, just joking with each other, I just feel this warmth in my chest. And, you know, I just feel my cheeks hurting from laughing so hard. And I just love you so much. Those are the, you know, like tying your gratitude practice to a somatic practice
1: just ups the power of it. Yeah, now I'm thinking like all the gratitude things and the reconnecting things and, huh. Yeah, I'm definitely a a tell me all about your date person. I'm also a food person. Okay, so this is funny. And this is a conversation that went around, I don't know, social media months ago about when someone's out on a date, if they come home. And be like, I have leftovers. You want to taste some? (laughs) Like, to me, that is the best. Like, and it has, and it's funny because, like, Uh, you know, when I was listening different people talk, they're like, that is the rudest. How could you give your date from another partner? And I'm like, of course, it's all circumstantial, depending on the, you know, but when we date other people, they're usually like, we have a very insular sort of dating circle. So oftentimes, if I'm with somebody, my partner knows who that person is. And they're usually friends, you know, and, and vice versa. So oftentimes, it'll even be like, he'll be out on a date, and his date will be like, Hey, before we get the bill, you should, you know, get something for Sunny. Bring it. Oh, she'll love a piece of that cheesecake or whatever. So if that's this, I'm like, yes, it makes me feel like, oh, cool. Or if it's just like, yeah, I had leftovers. I couldn't finish my steak. You, oh, you want to taste these potatoes? They were so good. And yeah, so we bond over how good food was. It's weird, but that's my thing. I
2: I agree with you about sharing experiences, like sharing, you know, what was your date like? How You know, how are you feeling? All that. That's definitely one also like the switching feeling the partner is switching gears and they're not like feeling that my partner is present with me at a certain point like if they continue to just feel like they're in that vortex with that other person and they don't feel like they're present with me that sometimes doesn't feel good i like to have um there's a time and a place for everything i guess is what i'm saying there's that time to like hear about the new lover or hear what's going on with my partner's other lover and then there's Another time where I need them to be present with me.
1: It's interesting because I think it's just so individual. When I think of my, you know, hearing about the date, just the way our dynamic is and the way that he is when he comes home from a date. It's kind of a mushmash of like, here's everything that happened, and here's let me tell you about the thing and taste my leftover potatoes and da-da-da. <laughs> Mixed, interdispersed with like I'm so happy and I really love you. And like, he just turns into a big, like love puppy, you know? So I get it both at the same time, sort of, which is awesome. And I've definitely experienced that too, where it's just
2: like, I mean, that's a beautiful feeling, isn't it? Where you can just feel the amplification of love in your partner. It's almost like natural MDMA.
1: (laughs) It really is. It's like, I'm getting a contact buzz. You know, and we're both just like, oh, love everything. Love, love, potatoes and love. Yeah, it's great. It
2: it would be interesting for neuroscientists to do a study on this. Like, where are the neurochemicals in a monogamous relationship? And where are the neurochemicals in a person where they are deeply in love with more than one person? Because I mean, both of us have experienced that, right? There's the love that you might feel from your partner, but then there's that moment where they're just like so in love with you, their other partner, and also their life. And the fact that they get to have all of this.
1: And then that rubs off on you really like a contact buzz or something, you know? It's really amazing.
2: And doesn't it feel without us doing a a scientific test, doesn't it feel like all the happy chemicals, like the dopamine, like all that, doesn't it just feel like it's all cranked up? Yeah, so those are some reconnection rituals that can help to make sure that you still feel connected, you know, with the three pillars, the intellectual, the emotional, and and the sexual, you know, uh, maintaining all of that. And then also, two means of maintaining the sexual connection, I would say, are BDSM and Tantra in long-term relationships. You know, if you think about it, in the beginning of a relationship, again, you have You know, the NRE, that this whole cocktail of neurochemicals, but one of the main ones that lasts in a long term relationship is oxytocin, which is sometimes called the neurotransmitter of trust. And so, if you think about both BDSM and Tantra, they both require so much trust. A lot of forms of BDSM, you know, when you think about BDSM, if you think about just uh, a scene with a Dom and a sub, where maybe he knows Shabari and she's tied up, or, you know, and she has a ball gag in her mouth. Like the amount of trust that's required, the chances, you know, again, I'm not sure exactly what the studies are comparing a really intense BDSM scene in comparison to just vanilla sex. That'd be another study that'd be interesting to look at. The
1: science of BDSM team out of Northern Illinois University, and I can't remember the results offhand, but they've done a few tests like that, like pair bonding after sadomasochistic scenes. And they did, I think they measured oxytocin. They did a Stroop test. They did a few other things. And it was like, like, oh, yes. Without a doubt. Yeah, it's a it's like science of BDSM And Like you go there, all their studies are there. So and like, and I'll look it up so we can put a link in the show notes. But
2: yeah, so it, it basically shows that it's higher than just regular sex.
1: Well, no, actually, they didn't compare it to regular sex. But I'm I'm trying to think if they cited stuff in regular stuff. That's something to look into. We got to look into it. But now. I mean, like, if you just think about your life and the times
2: again, this isn't scientific, it's more intuition, but when I think of most of the just the normal vanilla sex I've had in comparison to maybe a BDSM scene where I was submissive, like that takes way more trust usually, I think. And so it stimulates that oxytocin, which is the chemical that lasts in long-term relationships. And then again, Tantra requires... You know, when you think about Tantra, so many of the exercises are hand on heart, hand on heart, gazing into each other's eyes. All you have to do is watch, you know, participate in a one hour Tantra class and you'll watch people who stare into each other's eyes for just a minute and you'll watch them get giggly and wriggly. You know, it's like we really suck at, <laughs> at that kind of intimacy. And so if we can practice Tantra, again, we're building that trust in the, in a way that most vanilla relationships don't. So I believe that both BDSM and Tantra work with the oxytocin, the trust hormone, the the main chemical that lasts in long-term relationships. And that's why I feel like Tantra and BDSM are, are like really key avenues to maintain connection in a nesting partner relationship or a long-term primary relationship.
1: I agree. You know, like I said, or like you said, it's all anecdotal, but just from my own experience, if I think about the vanilla sexual experiences I've had in my life that have like left me with that same feeling of connection, those are rare occurrences where somehow all the stars align. I probably have more fingers on my hands than I have experiences that I've had like that in my life. You know what I mean? That are on par with like that feeling I feel after a really intense BDSM scene. They're just they're so different. And if I happen to touch that with vanilla sex, it was purely by some strange luck coincidence, something that just everything aligned, but that's not the typical for vanilla sex.
2: Yeah. The times that I've really felt that the most with vanilla sex is when I incorporated something that was maybe not tantra. Like, you know, one time I actually did something like 20, 25 minutes of holotropic breath work before I had sex which creates all kinds of shifts in the brain. And I had something that, you know, ended up feeling like God sex, what I I would call God sex. But again, that's, you know, to me, it's similar to the intention of Tantra, where you're just, you're doing something that purposely amplifies your ability to be present.
1: Yeah, and, and, and the same, you know, when I think of those rare times I've had that in vanilla sex, you know, again, I didn't do necessarily anything to prepare, but the encounter... And the connection I had with the person, even though it was not something we planned on, did have a very like power dynamic-y, like there's more things going on under the surface in like a mental, emotional, like power play sort of exchange. Even if we weren't like getting out the floggers and doing traditional BDSM, there was still that power vibe that just sort of popped up by accident or because the chemistry was right or whatever. But yeah, it really was to me very similar to those things that I find in BDSM that I create on purpose.
2: So now we've like covered a lot of different ways, you know, a lot of threats to connection, a lot of ways to stay connected. One of the reasons that this is so important to discuss is again, As I've always said, the reason non-monogamy is harder than monogamy is that it pokes at our relation, our unresolved attachment injuries way more than monogamy does. So even if you feel pretty connected to your partner, if you, you know, most of us do have some attachment injuries in our past. And so even if we're doing a lot of these things, we still may sometimes feel a little separate from our partner just because one of our attachment injuries is getting poked. And so by doing these things, by making sure that, you know, the three pillars are nurtured, if we make sure that we are practicing staying grounded in our body so that we can track our relationship from a centered place and and have that meta outside observer tracking of our relationship so that we can see more easily when we're getting triggered or when we're feeling a little left or when we're feeling disconnected then we can have a better ability to ask our partner for what we need what a person needs
1: and you know what just dawned on me and I'm sure you know you're the expert so you're like of course but that you know not only are these things all things That absolutely one hundred percent apply to monogamous relationships. You know, like maintaining that connection. You know, all the other things that we talked about. But really, if you think about the things that are threatening our connection, yeah, maybe in non-monogamous relationships, they are other people and other dates and other you know quote distractions or things that are competing for, you know, or that we feel mistakenly are like competing for attention with us, kind of. But really it's like maybe in a monogamous relationship, that's World of Warcraft. That's, you know, some other thing that we feel is shining a light on those disconnections that were already there. So if you look at it that way, like, we're all the same. We're not that different. It, it's just, you know, slightly different details, but we're all human beings and we all have emotions and it's all really hard to be a human being sometimes. And it's all the same.
2: I mean, I certainly, you know, uh, as I've told you before, I had a 13 year non-monogamous relationship I had an 11 year monogamous relationship in my 20s. And certainly I, you know, I can think about times where, you know, we were in the same car together and. Even though we were in the same car together, I didn't feel he was present. You know what I
1: mean? Yeah. you hear about people saying, like, you know, I never thought I could feel so lonely when I'm right next to someone that happens to people in all different types of relationships,
2: yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's we all have to decide, you know, what helps us be connected, you know? And I think part of it is also have trusting your partner and feeling, the compassion of your partner enough to be able to say the things that you're noticing in the relationship. I notice that we're drifting apart. I notice that we don't seem to be on the same page about our intellectual interests lately, you know, like to be able to say those kind of hard things. And also with sex, like so many of my couples, they don't talk to each other about sex until something is going wrong.
1: And I think also not only being able to say those things, being able to receive those things and hear that instead of like, we're growing apart. What do you mean we're growing apart? (laughs) You know, and not be defensive. So not losing your shit. Yeah. That communication takes too, because it is very emotional and difficult. What's next, Kate? What are we going to talk about in our final installment?
2: Our final installment, we're going to talk about coming out. The final installment is talking about coming out and, you know, That is a super important topic. It's one of those things where I remember when I was first coming out, and I'll save it for the next episode. But for me, I slowly came out over time. Like, literally, the last person I came out to, I came out to last December. And I started coming out uh, probably in 2004, so, you know, it's like, it doesn't have to be this all at once kind of thing. It can be this slow process. And um, there's so many different factors to discuss about coming out when you're non-monogamous. And it can be very challenging. I remember when I first talked to a psychotherapist down in San Diego that happened to be gay. And I was almost apologetic because I started crying about the prospect of coming out more. Because this is when I was pretty young. And I... I was being apologetic, saying I I feel bad because me coming out as non-monogamous is not as difficult as probably coming out as gay was for you when you were young. And he was so kind. He was just like, Kate, any kind of coming out process is hard and we don't have to do a comparison like that. He was very kind. And um, since then... I've helped so many different people come out in various ways since I have clients that are kinky, non-monogamous, sex workers, like so many different coming out journeys.
1: Oh, I cannot wait. to talk. I have so many thoughts, but I'm going to save them for next time. And I know that everyone else listening is like, oh, but I want you to keep talking. But we can't because the episode's over. But what you can do is hit the subscribe button so you can be sure not to miss that next episode. Until then, we'll be seeing you when we once again, dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at
0: opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Lurie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the Queen Goddess Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.